Hey, just before we open the scriptures together, just a couple of things um, by way of, of uh, I guess, big picture preamble. Um, just one really quick. If you are new with us, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you've joined us on a morning when we're going to get into the text you're going to hear read. Um, you're joining us on a morning where we are talking about how we handle sin within the church community. It's a bit of an insider conversation. I think it's important for us to do. I'm going to explain this all the way through, but I just want you to know that you are welcome. I want you to know that what you're going to hear today is part of how we actually care for one another. It's part of our discipleship. As followers of Jesus, we think it's important in the way that we live that out. And so that's what goes on here. This is part of it. It's part of the way that we show one another how much we have been loved by God and then how we extend that love that we have received. Um, every citizen of the city of Vancouver is living according to some larger grand story. And whether they know it or not, they're following a set of principles that tell them then how to live. And ours tells us that God so deeply loves us that we need to be concerned with how we live that out. That's our ethics. That's our morals. It's what changes us and shapes us. And we want to be clear with the way that we're living and not just the words we speak, but the actions that go with them. We want to be really clear to model what it means to be loved by God, that he might be known in our city. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, just know this is a bit of an internal conversation. Secondly, uh, to those of you uh, parents of youth um, who might be here with us, I sent this uh, message out to the, the, the youth and the, and the youth parents already through the week. But if you didn't get the message, this morning we're going to deal with the topic of sexual immorality. And uh, I don't think there's going to be anything here that your kids haven't heard at school. <laughs> anything. Uh, but I always want to say that. I just always want to give a bit of a heads up to you that that's what we're going to be dealing with also next week and then also two weeks after that. Um, as it turns out, this was a problem 2,000 years ago in Corinth as well. So that's what we're going to be doing. With that said, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold your glory. We pray you'd open our ears that we might hear your word. Pray that you would open our hearts that we might believe, because we know that in believing God, it translates to the way that we live out our faith, and that we, God, then would see you glorified by the work of our hands. This is our prayer today, and we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. He imagined there was a guy in our church who was involved in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Everybody knows him. He's a follower of Jesus, but he has been sexually involved with his dad's wife, and everybody knows about it. 
People are starting to talk about it. Word's gotten out into the neighborhood around us. We're now actually getting emails from neighbors who don't even follow Jesus who are asking us what's going on. And then imagine we just ignored it as if it was not a big deal. In fact, imagine we celebrated it as if this man was somehow exercising his freedoms in Christ. Imagine that, because that's what this text is about. That's what we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians. I want to put it under the headings of the sin, the discipline, and the celebration. Really quickly, let's just jump into this. The sin, the discipline, and the celebration. The sin, let's talk about sin. Okay, when, when somebody, just so you know, when somebody says something like, let's talk about sin. Okay. Well, first of all, you should get ready. <laughs> Second of all, though, into your mind should immediately come, I wonder how he defines that. Okay, a lot of the arguments that we have as Christians are because we don't take time to slow down and define our terms. We get into arguments with people, but we actually don't even engage with what they may or may not mean by the words that they're using. So when I say, let's talk about sin, the first question should pop into your mind is, is I wonder how he defines that. Because I've already anticipated that, I'm going to show you. Sinning is any action or attitude that is rebellious toward God, toward what God has revealed in Scripture as true and right. Let me read it again. Sinning is any action or attitude that is rebellious toward what God has revealed in Scripture as true and right. Okay? The first instance of human sin was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God by disobeying what he told them and by doing what they wanted to do on their own. Genesis chapter 3 shows us this. Verse 1 says, The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? She was tempted to believe a lie about God, and in that is the essence of of all sin. The essence of sin is here in the question, did God actually say? It's where it all begins. Leslie Newbegin said, according to the biblical story, the primal sin, which was the root of all that followed, was the willingness to entertain a suspicion that God could not be wholly trusted and therefore to wish to see for oneself what God had hidden. This is the beginning of sin. We question whether or not we can trust God. Sin is a rejection of who God is. Sin is a rejection of his authority. And sin is a rejection of his will for us as human beings who were created to image him in the world. Sinning is any action or attitude that is rebellious toward what God has revealed in Scripture as true and right. Now, to make this even worse, you need to think about the fact that we sin by commission and omission. That means we sin by doing something we ought not to do, and it means that we sin by not doing something that we ought to do. We do something we're not supposed to do, or we don't do something we should do. When you think about the fact that human beings have been doing this for thousands of years, and it sort of multiplies each generation, it feels like. It's not true, but it feels that way. It's, it's, it's no wonder that the world is as messed up as it is. If we can sin by the things we 
are doing and by the things we're not doing. And then that just generationally compounds. This is what I'm talking. So when I say, let's talk about sin, I just want to be really clear. That's what I'm talking about. And we need help. We need help. Now, the question here is what kind of particular sin are we dealing with in this text? That's the question we got to ask. And there's actually two. There's one sin of omission and there's one sin of commission. And I want us to see both of them. They're both very important for us to see. One doing wrong and one not doing right. So we're going to take them in order. Okay, look at the first one. Look at the first one in verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Okay. When we see the phrase sexual immorality in scripture, it's generally a catch-all phrase that encompasses all kinds of sexual practices that are not in line with what God has revealed in scripture as true and right. That means it's sinful. It's immoral according to God. Now, in some ways, sexual immorality, the phrase that's behind that in the original language that this was written in, that phrase is actually a really familiar term to us today. The phrase is pornea. Pornea, it's where we get our word porn. Sexual immorality. And in the Bible, pornea covers all kinds of sinful sexual activity, which is to say any action or attitude with regard to sex that is outside of the covenant marriage of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. Let me say it again because it's very important that you hear me. Sexual immorality in the Bible is any sexual activity or sinful attitude or action that is outside the covenant marriage of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. So the report comes to Paul the Apostle. He's got somebody who's come to where he's staying at the time. And they come and they say, Paul, got a letter from the church in Corinth, and I've got a few updates to give you about what's actually going on there on the ground. And this person communicates to Paul everything that's happening. The report comes to Paul the apostle, again, not in the city of Corinth. He's away somewhere else. But he hears the report of the sexual immorality, which he says is of a kind that is not even tolerated by the world around them. That means the unbelieving world around them. Hey, Corinth is not some small town that has some sort of like real strong morals, like a real family values small town. Okay, that's not Corinth. We talked about this earlier when we were starting the series back in September. Corinth is a sex-obsessed city with two major ports, which means people are coming and going every single day from all over the world. And it is well documented historically that they had a prominent prostitution industry that everybody knew about. Okay. Corinth was notoriously loose with its sexual ethics. And that's Paul's whole point about how wild this actually is in the church. He's saying, even those people are looking at you like you are wicked. You're like, wow, this is intense. That's the sin of commission in the text that we see. That's an individual in their church committing grievous sin in a deliberate and unrepentant way. 
Hey, that's the first sin. I just want to be clear. This guy didn't stumble into sin one night late, kind of whoops, and made a mistake, went and confessed it to his brothers and sisters in the church. This guy moved in with his stepmom. Okay. Like not so she could cook for him. Okay. That's the first sin. Second sin in the text, the sin of omission. The sin of omission was what the community of the church did not do that they should have done. It's what they did not do that they should have done. Again, look at the text, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says the city around you is looking at this and they are shocked and you aren't blushing. What's going on? He says you church are arrogant and puffed up and inflated in your own standing before God and the rest of the world. And you're deeply, deeply wrong. See, the sin of commission is the sexual immorality. The sin of omission is was the church not caring. Their arrogance had caused them to tolerate sin and allow this to continue unchecked. When instead, in their holiness, they ought to have broken into mourning and weeping even as they faithfully confronted the sin itself. Look at verse two again. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, it's a little bit crazy to think this, but what Paul seems really upset about here in the church is that they refuse to weep over this sin. That's what he's writing about. He's upset about the sin of the church who refused to remove the man from among them. He's upset about the sin of a church that has grown complacent and arrogant and proud. Okay, there are lots of reasons that they may be avoiding uh, confronting this man. There's lots of reasons that they might be doing it, but we don't know what those are. Paul does not share those with us in the letter. He says that they don't confront him because they're arrogant and boastful. That's what he says. And he says, instead, they'd be better off weeping. He says, ought not you rather to mourn? Okay, Christ City, it is easy to abstract this into someone else's problem 2,000 years ago, right? It's easy to look at the text that way and be like, whoa, that's crazy. Okay, when's the last time you wept over your sin? When's the last time you called someone up who you love? You called them up. And he said, I love you, but can you help me understand why you're doing that? It's easy to abstract these things, but we have to bring it to our heart. We have to feel this a bit. When's the last time you grieved the lust in your own heart? Because this man was in full-blown sexual immorality, yes, but that started as a seed of lust in his heart. When's the last time you felt convicted 
over the way you spoke to someone? When's the last time you felt convicted over the way you spoke about someone behind their back? When's the last time you mourned over your sinful anger or you mourned the sin of your greed? When's the last time you wept over your envy and jealousy? Because you've got to realize envy and jealousy is just a manifestation of you thinking that God has somehow shortchanged you and been unfairly generous with somebody else. You don't trust him. Here's the issue. In the text, it's actually even deeper than these things. It's deeper than them just not dealing with it. The way that it's written in their arrogance, it seems as though they were actually celebrating this man's sin. If you look down to verse 6, the first part of verse 6, it says your boasting is not good. They were boasting in having a guy like this in their church. Their arrogance had led them to boasting in that which is sinful and wrong. They are arrogantly boasting in actions and attitudes that are rebellious toward what God has revealed in Scripture as true and right. Paul said they ought to be mourning, weeping. I am well aware that I am a saint who still sins. I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint who still sins. My identity has been changed. I have come to Christ. I am a new creation in him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, so are you. You are a saint who still sins. So I'm well aware that I am a person who still sins, speaking to a group of people who still sin. But boasting in sin is actually a different thing. And that's what it seems as though the church here was doing. Just for a, a, sober, a sober moment, think about how many churches in the city of Vancouver are celebrating that which Scripture clearly condemns. Affirming what Scripture forbids is arrogant and boastful. I'm not standing here as a sinless guy who's got it all together, and I know I'm not talking to a room full of sinless people who've got it all together, but God forbid we boast in sin. Affirming what Scripture forbids is arrogant and boastful, and the Bible here calls it arrogant, boastful pride. This pride was the besetting sin of the church in Corinth. And it is the besetting sin of the church in Vancouver to believe that we can elevate ourselves, our opinions, and our thoughts over the authority of God. That is boastful, and that is pride. You cannot affirm that which God condemns and call it love. You cannot stick a rainbow flag on the sign outside of a church building and say it's loving. We love all people. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you've done. I don't care what you did last night or this morning. We love you. 
I don't care how you identify. None of it matters. We will love you, but we will not affirm that which God forbids. And we will not boast in sin. Along with Paul, it's my prayer that Christ City may consistently and lovingly say with tears in our eyes, your boasting is not good. That our posture would be one of humility, but boldness in the truth, not boldness in that which God has forbidden in sin. Paul is so clear here, and we need to be very clear as well. First with ourselves. If you haven't examined the heart, we prayed Psalm 51 earlier. If that kind of prayer of repentance is not something you would do before you would stand up and call someone else to account, right? we have to make sure that we're not adjusting the speck in our brother's eye with a plank sticking out of our own. That's what Jesus said. Now we check with ourselves first. We need to be very clear with one another here as well. And only then can we have any grounds to talk about others. Only then do we have any grounds to say to others, the very thing you are boasting about is the thing that ought to make you weep. That's what the text shows us. I think it's how we can carry it out. First, that's the sin. A sin of omission and a sin of commission. Second, I want us to look at the discipline. The discipline. 1 Corinthians is not a letter directed to the pastors or elders of the church of God in Corinth. It is a letter that is directed to the entire body of the church of God in Corinth. The whole congregation. Paul, who planted this church, their apostle, is calling them to mourn and weep over the sin in their midst and to take action with it. Which means that they need to remove this unrepentant man from their congregation. Verse 2 says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, just as there were two sins that we needed to look at, there are also two reasons that we need to explore here for what is called church discipline. There are two reasons or two goals for church discipline. We'll look at them in order. The first is the salvation of the sinner. And the second is the holiness of the community. This is what we would call church discipline. The goal is the salvation of the sinner and the holiness of the community. Look at verse three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, Paul writes in a letter that is going to be read to a congregation like this. He writes to them and he says, I'm not there. But when the messenger carrying this letter shows up from me and when you all gather together in the name of Jesus, you've got my words, so it's like I was there. That's what he's saying. When this happens, remove this man from among you. 
It is for his good so that he might learn to humble himself and repent of his sin that in the end he might be saved. That's what this text is showing us. Paul says he has already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And because he's their apostle, he is the guy in authority, he is not making a light suggestion to the church. Do this. He says, this is what you must do. I want you to handle it as if I was in the room with you. Okay, but why? Okay, first reason, he wants the sinful man to repent and be saved. He wants this guy to glorify God in his behavior and life. Okay, but did you see the desired intent in the text? Did you see it? Look back at verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of, of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's a very important so that. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that he might be saved. Okay. All church discipline is patterned after God's discipline, which is good and right, but which is also always restorative and never punitive. It is not meant to be a punishment. It is meant to be a restorative action that will lead to an ultimate restoration. All church discipline is meant to be restorative, not punitive. This person is not being put out of the congregation because they're like, you suck, leave. That is not how it's being handled. They are to, with tears, beg him to repent and if he will not, tell him he is not welcome among them. Restorative, not punitive. It may feel punitive to us or even the person who's enduring it, but that is not the goal. The goal is always restoration to the community. Paul and the church are acting as representatives of Christ. Okay, verse four says they gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and that they remove this man from the community with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is not a power play on Paul's part. It's not like Paul found out who this was and he's like, yeah, I never liked that guy anyways, get him out. That's not what's going on here. It's not a power play on Paul's part. He has no joy in doing this. This is being done in line with Jesus' own teaching. I remember having a conversation with a guy one time. I pastored at a different church a long time ago. And this guy came to talk to me after the gathering. And then he stayed for quite some time after the gathering. And we were trying to have a conversation. And, and he was adamant that he hated Paul the apostle, but he loved Jesus. I was like, cool. I'm like, I don't personally know Paul, but he hated everything Paul wrote. Okay. Because he said, Paul seems like a jerk. I was like, first of all, I don't think you're right, which took some time to explain. I didn't win this conversation or the debate either, by the way. But you don't get to say like, well, that's just Paul. He's really harsh. Jesus. He's that Jesus with that nice lamb that he holds in the pictures. And he just pets it because he's nice and loving. Not like Paul, who was harsh, severe. Okay, don't, don't be tricked into some sort of trope like that, some sort of like characterization. It's a caricature of Paul and it's a caricature of Jesus. 
Paul's not telling them to live out Paul's words. Paul's telling them to live out Jesus' words. Look at Matthew chapter 18. He tells us how to handle this when somebody will not repent of their sin. It says, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means not part of your community. Do you think he was holding the lamb and petting it when he said that? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't think Jesus had a lot of lambs along with him. I think they were probably hungry often. (laughs) Don't live into a caricature of Jesus and a caricature of what you see in Paul's letters. See, if we zoom out from the extreme situation taking place in Corinth and we consider Jesus' teaching, we are really reminded that this church discipline thing actually happens around us all of the time. Like weekly. It's happening when you call somebody and you say, you know, that really hurt my feelings when you said that. I believe you sinned against me. And then that person goes, oh my gosh, you're right. I did not mean to hurt your feelings. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And then like you go get lunch together. That's church discipline. You're calling someone on their sin and they're repenting. It's when your community group leaders call you up and go, can you come a bit early to our house on Tuesday night? We just want to talk with you about some stuff. Why don't you come for dinner? And you come for dinner and they sit you down and they go, look, we know you well and it'd be great. Could you just help us understand why you're doing this? I don't don't think you see it. I think you're blind to it. And then you sit there and you go, my gosh, this is discipleship. These people love me. They, They were loving me enough to make it awkward to say that I was doing something that was harming me and someone else. And first of all, it was sinning against God. And you repent of your sin. And no one else in your group ever knows about it. All they see is the transformation it works in your heart and in your life and the way that you live. They never know about it. This is what happens when somebody else in your community group just says, hey, before work, can we get a coffee real early in the morning? I just want to talk to you about a couple of things. And they just say, look, look, this is how you're handling yourself. And I just want to show you in the scriptures why I think it's wrong. And, and maybe you just don't know. And I just want to show you. Okay, that's church discipline. It's happening all around us. It's happening all of the time. And I can tell you 99% of the church discipline I've been involved in has resulted in immediate repentance and immediate restoration of the person who was caught in sin. of the time. Yet there is the 1%. And when that happens and when someone is asked to leave, it is only and always so that they might repent and be saved. Like if you told me, if I I was in sin, which by the way, I've I've been here for, well, we planted in 2013, so then. Do you know how many times people have called me out of my sin in this community? How many times the elders have come and and said to me, look, the way you're handling that or the way you spoke to us that night or the way you said this thing or the way, are you kidding? In my own community group, guys who will call me up. I remember this guy calling me up and just like, he was going, look, we're friends. And I said, yeah. He goes, then I'm gonna blast you for a second because you know how much I love you already. I don't need to start there. Like I've been challenged to repent of my sin that have been blind spots or willful sin so many times. That's how I know people love me. 
Because if you love me, you'll call me out on that, which is damaging. If you don't love me, you'll just let me continue on into it and I'll head into destruction. But the 1%, when that happens, is always so that person might repent and be saved. Like if you told me, repent of your sin, and I didn't, and then you came back to me with someone else and said, repent of your sin, and I said, no. And then you got up in front of the church and you said, look, we've talked to Brett about his sin. He is absolutely unwilling to repent. He thinks he has done nothing wrong. We have told him he is not welcome to celebrate communion, and he is not welcome here. If you told me I wasn't welcome here, I would be broken. And that's the purpose of it. That with a group of other people who can see my blind spots better than me, they may call me on my sin. And that's okay. So that I might be restored. So why do church discipline the salvation of the sinner? And secondly, the holiness of the community. Look at verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, a little leaven gets into the whole batch of dough. Okay, since most of you stopped baking bread like 50 years ago, or at least in the first month of the pandemic, you tried it for a bit and then it was, it was great. And then you stopped because you realized you're packing it on. You're not doing anything, not leaving your house. Yeah, yeah I, I baked some bread, look. Guy named, because we don't do this on a daily basis like they would have here, it's a bit harder for us. There's a guy named Andrew Wilson, who's a great pastor and theologian. He said, um, a little mold molds the whole cheese. I was like, okay, that I can understand. A little mold on there, just slice that baby off, save the whole block. Don't slice it off, throw the whole block away about a week later. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, a little mold spreads through the whole cheese. The point is, but that's funny though, right? A little mold spreads through the whole cheese. That's actually pretty, I, I, I like that. That's helpful to me. I thought I'd share it with you. The point is, what is called to be pure is defiled by the tolerance of impurity. What is called to be or should be pure is defiled by the intolerance of impurity. So purity means without mixture. Okay, now, the goal is not a sinless church. That will be the forever goal, but that is not the earthly goal. The goal is a church that keeps repenting when it sins. So you'll do fine in life if you just don't stop repenting. You'll never be perfect. You'll never be sinless. Not until then. But now the goal is just to continue repenting. We need to see, though, that Jesus' church is called to holiness and blatantly tolerating or celebrating sin is not a godly thing to do. In fact, it reveals a lack of faithfulness to God. So as a community, we need to be faithful to God. We need to follow God's word. We need to lovingly call one another to repentance. But again, Jesus does give this warning that we need to be careful that we are not adjusting the speck in our brother or sister's eye as we are, you know, have the log protruding from our own. That's what I like to call plank specking. If you've got the plank in your own eye, but you come around and tell everybody else what's going on, eh, plank specker. Don't do that. Okay, we need to do this with humility, but we also have to do it with courageous faithfulness. It's not easy. We need to be willing to help one another along as disciples of Jesus who endure the discipline of Jesus for our salvation and for the benefit of the community. Disciple and discipline come from the same word. Third, 
we've got, well, we'll, we looked at the sin, which was an individual and corporate sin of omission and commission. That was the sin. Secondly, we looked here at the discipline. That's for the salvation of the sinner and the holiness of the community. Okay, third, the celebration. Look at verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay. He says they need to recognize their own sin, which was not calling this sinful man to repent. He says that they need to engage in church discipline, which needs, means that they need to remove the unrepentant man from among them so that the preservation of the witness of the community will be there and the, the glory of God can be seen again once, once again through their community. They need to be an unleavened community, he says. That is a pure community pursuing holiness in their conduct. Unleavened means pure. They need to make sure the leaven of unrepentant sin does not get mixed into the community of holiness. That's what he's saying. But the leaven and lump metaphor here is actually much more profound than you would maybe just see it on first reading. Uh, in fact, this entire text, it has Old Testament roots. Um, I don't have time to take you to all of them, but the sin of incest where a man has his father's wife is spoken about several times in the, in the law, in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus. Comes with the command that the community purge the evil one from among them. That's Old Testament text. That's where Paul's getting this from. This is how to be the community of God faithfully. That's, that's right off the pages of the scripture. Particularly here, though, we need to focus on what they're celebrating. The passage here again, as we've seen time and time again already in 1 Corinthians, all the way through chapter 1 up here into chapter 5 now, this passage is about Christ crucified. Unleavened bread and the Passover lamb both point back to a very significant thing in the Old Testament. They point back to the grand deliverance of God where he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them into the promised land. That's where the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread comes from. When God did what we call the Exodus, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in slavery and brought them into freedom in the promised land, into the land of their inheritance. They were set free from the bondage of slavery by the grace of God as a gift to them. They were brought then, like I said, into the promised land. Unleavened bread and Passover lamb both call to mind the way that God saves. On the, the Passover in Egypt, again, we call it the Exodus. You can see that in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel were told to sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their home that they would then not experience death, but that they would actually be saved. They were told to make bread, but
but to make it really quickly because God was going to deliver them and take them out of there. They didn't have time for a nice loaf that had some rise to it with some leaven in it. They needed to make unleavened bread because they were going to be traveling quick. And ever since that, when they sacrificed the lamb, spread the blood on the doorposts of their home, made the unleavened bread really quickly and got packed because they were believing in faith that God was going to deliver them in that moment, and he did. And then they walked away from Egypt and they moved into the desert. And then after a number of years, they moved into the promised land. They continue to celebrate the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread as a way to remember the way that God has saved them. Paul knows that. This is part of the cultural memory of the people that he has spent time discipling. The second half of verse seven says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For them and for us, Christ is the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of what that anticipated. I said at the beginning when I was defining sin, I said we need help. The reality is we can't do this on our own. Try as we might in our own strength, we will never be able to make ourselves right with God. We need help. And that's what this is about. Here's the help. In the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts of the Israelite homes, that they might be saved, the blood of Christ crucified is applied to us when we believe by faith that his death in our place has secured us the forgiveness of God. Jesus died for us in the same way as the Passover lamb was sacrificed for them. The death of the Passover lamb for the Israelites pointed forward to the sign of Jesus' death for our new life in him. And that's why Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb. And the Passover celebrates a life of freedom and the rescue of God. But it also reminded the people of Israel which God they belonged to and who had in fact saved them, who had brought them new life and who they were to be loyal to in the way that they lived. And so we're to celebrate as well, not from freedom from slavery in the Exodus, but freedom from something that's far worse. And again, that the Exodus could only anticipate. We are to celebrate our freedom from sin and from death and from the power of Satan who pulls us away from true life and relationship with God. We are to celebrate the saving work of God in our life. See, church discipline is not meant to stop the celebration, but actually to increase it. Church discipline is not meant to stop the celebration, but actually to be cause for it. This is why we call you to repent of sin before you celebrate communion, which you'll do here just in a few moments. The bread and the wine point back to our Passover lamb. Back to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The church in Corinth was celebrating sin. Communion is the celebration of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We need to make sure we're celebrating the right thing. Christ has been sacrificed for your salvation, which means when we celebrate his life, death, and resurrection in the communion meal, we need to do so with repentance asking God to forgive us, to make us holy, and that we would continue to glorify him. 